You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, Now, as is our custom, I want to invite you to open the Bible with me. And uh, if you don't have a smartphone or a device, they'll get you access to a Bible. Then you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of one of the chairs in front of you. And I would say if this is even one of the first times you've had a Bible in your hands, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Uh, we find that there are, there are mysteries and truths there that are evident for, for those of us who are opening it for the first time or for those of us who find that treasure for the thousandth, thousandth time. And so we will be, in the, as is our custom, walking through books of the Bible in the Psalms. That is the 150 hymns or uh, choruses or songs of praise or poems that you'll find in the dead center of the Bible. So de- give or take, about the middle of the Bible, we'll be in the 69th of those Psalms. We began it last week. We'll, we'll wrap it up next next week. And, and so we'll read through it again today. It'll take about four minutes as we read through it, but we'll be spending most of our time focusing on what I'll say is kind of the second section or major section uh, beginning in verse 13. Now remember, as we shared, this is the, the, the prayer book of the Bible. That is, in fact, the Psalms are quoted more than any other book of the Bible in the New Testament, quoted more by Jesus than any other part of the New Testament, in many ways presuming that we would know. And not only that, but other than the 22nd Psalm, this particular Psalm, as we saw last week and we'll see again this week, is quoted seven times or more than any other of the Psalms, as if to say that if you, maybe you're curious about what Christianity is, maybe you want to know more about who Jesus is and what this is about, think of this is one of the best ways to hear even from the very mouth of Jesus, what it is that we believe, the the language that we use, and how we understand the life of faith. So this is a psalm of King David, who for us as Christians see him as a a precursor, a preview, as I shared with you, an appetizer for all that we believe is true about Jesus. And so I'll read all the way through. It'll take about four minutes or so, and don't be afraid uh, if you if you kind of if you trail off if you space out go somewhere else where there's palm trees and all that good stuff. I hope you enjoy it. But as you come back to the room, as maybe something grabs your attention, maybe pay close attention to it. Even maybe mark make make a mark of of that particular thing, and then trust it. There might be something that you want to pay special attention to. So beginning with the caption of the 69th Psalm, to the choir master, according to lilies. That is the tune that would have been sung with it, of King David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me, without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel." For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, and the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep water swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. 
Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is God's word. I pray that it becomes more than ink on a page for us, but the very voice of God, the words of God for the people of God. In 1976, a song was written called The Gambler. It was made famous by many different artists, but mainly Kenny Rogers. And the chorus, as many of you will know, and here's the thing, if you didn't know, you'd be like, I don't, I don't know that song. I don't know that song. Well, you don't know much about Psalm, the 69th Psalm either, so you get double gift today, right? <laughs> the chorus says, you got to know when to hold them, and know when to fold them, right? Uh, I don't even know if I remember all the words. I have to, I'm going to have to sing it for you. Ready? Let's do it. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be plenty of time for counting when the dealing's done. Now you got to ask yourself what's that song about? What is that song, in this sense, what is that song in reference to? Now, on one hand, it's about poker. It's about gambling. The song is called The Gambler. But if you listen to the rest of the song and even to that, you, you come to find out, well, it's actually about life. Oh. And then, turns out, the, the guy who is telling this story, he dies in his sleep. And then all of a sudden, the song is about death and judgment. And so you've got to ask yourself, is this song about poker? Is it a lesson about life? Is it about death and judgment? Now, I want to commend to you the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes the, the church in Corinth in his second letter. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And the Psalms give us the language of faith. And in the same way, but yet in an infinitely greater, an exponentially more substantive way, more than the, the song made famous by by some country singer, even Johnny Cash. We find here this psalm quoted by Jesus in the Gospel of John, such that we ask ourselves, is this psalm in reference to David, as we find? Is it about a, a circumstance in which David found himself, 
Or is it about something bigger and deeper? And in the same way that some songs have a poetic way of talking about one thing, and yet opening our eyes to something deeper and more substantive, so also, as we saw last week, this song has more than one reference point. It's a reference to David, a historical situation in which David found himself being falsely accused. Did you hear the language of of being uh, uh, charged with something that he did not do? Not that he was perfectly innocent, but but ultimately, he he said, this is false. These, These are lies that are stacked against me. And yet, we find elsewhere find this for the rest of the New Testament. We, right, we, we, we quoted this last week that even um, in, the, in the section of Scripture we'll find ourselves uh, here in, in last week, verse 4 is directly quoted by, Psalm, or excuse me, by, by Jesus in John 15 when he's talking about the persecution that he will endure and the persecution that his followers will endure. We saw last week that the, the quote, the zeal for the Father's house will consume me. You saw as we just read in verse 9, Ultimately, the the New Testament writers tell us was a picture of how Jesus would have zeal for the presence of God. We saw in Romans chapter 9 that the the picture of the reproach that Jesus experienced was a picture, evidently, of something greater going on, previewed a thousand years before in this 69th Psalm. And so we see in in the 21st verse, all four Gospels make reference to it. Romans chapter 11, as Paul writes a letter to a church in Rome. He makes reference and quotes almost verbatim, verses 22 and 23. And then lastly, the book of Acts, in telling a story about what it means to be a a servant who is suffering unjustly, and so therefore cast out, he refers to this, the, the writer Luke refers to this psalm as to kind of quote the apostle's explanation for the end result of the life of Judas. So, What's this psalm about? Last week we saw in one sense it's a reference to the life of faith, King David. And yet for us, and for those who, again, walk by faith, not by sight, there is something that is beyond what meets the eye. There is something deep and powerful. And so I want to walk through this second section with those things in mind. That with the eyes of faith, we we get the language of faith that tells us a little bit about the experience of the life of faith for a person like King David and the people who were were singing this psalm along with the choir master in exile, in in distress. And we're, we're, we're given here the language of what it means to call out and cry out to God when we experience adversity and distress and suffering in the world and have enemies in the world that Jesus says we will certainly have. And yet we also see here a picture of what Jesus is like. So... As we walk through this, I'll give you two kind of pictures that we, I think, come clear in the life of David, and then we'll kind of turn to how those ultimately point to a deeper meaning in Jesus. Distress and suffering are an opportunity, you find this all in the very first verse of the section we began, verse 13, are an opportunity to turn to God, to turn to His timing, and to turn to His steadfast love and saving faithfulness. Right, so if this were a song about the life of faith, and you were to wonder, like, what does it mean to, to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian? Then think of this as an indicator. Here's the language of faith. So in verse 13, he makes a, a stark contrast. We saw last week he begins the theme that we'll see picked up for the rest of the psalm, that, that this is a picture of a servant who is suffering, the theme of a righteous servant, servant suffering in a way that, that he doesn't rightly res- deserve. And so he makes a, a reference to all these things that are happening to him, and, and they begin to be, as we, as we see here, a, a, call to, a call to recognize what we call redemptive reversals, reversals of fate, that in the story of the life of faith, there are highs and lows, and sometimes what seems like a high is a precursor to a low or vice versa. And so here's the turn in verse 13, but, but as for me. So what he's been describing is, here's what the people against me have been doing. Here's what they're doing. Here's how they're looking. But me, but as for me, my prayer is what? To you. Right? These other people have been making accusations, singing songs about him. Right? They've, been, they've been directing their thoughts and words towards him. And he's saying, rather than redirect, and this is, this is powerful, right? Rather than this being a song of vengeance, notice, at no point in this psalm, even though he wishes very awful things to happen to his enemy, at no point does he think these are things I must do. 
These are things that ultimately he trusts God to do. But as for me, my prayer is to, speaking directly, not, not, not to his enemies, but to God. My prayer is to you, O Lord. So here the language, you see it picked up elsewhere, where he actually calls and invites God to turn towards him. He says, this is what they were doing, but me, I am turning now to God. This is the difficult part. In the petition, did you hear that, that phrase? Most people would want to scratch this right out of the Bible. At an acceptable time, O God. To turn to God, not just to the character and nature of God, but to the timing of God. And then lastly, what does he appeal to? Does he appeal to, in this sense, like his merit? How much he deserves to be delivered? Does, it, does he appeal to how much he's entitled? No, he says, in the end, it's in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. Right? He doesn't say, in my merit, in my goodness and innocence, answer me, God. He says, no, in your steadfast love, answer me. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Now just notice all the things that are packed into this. In the experience of distress and suffering, we are offered an opportunity, an invitation to turn to God, to find hope in God, to trust his timing, and ultimately to trust in his goodness. Now, there's so many things packed into that, but just to pick out a few. This is meant to be a subtle, but in many ways, a pointed rebuke to us, isn't it? It's meant to call to attention our own tendency that when things go wrong, we first and foremost want to take matters into our own hands. And he's saying that's not, that's not a source of hope. That, won't, that, that might feel really good for a moment. That kind of vengeance feels satisfying, but only for a fleeting moment. Ultimately, God is the one who is just. And if you, it matters when your hands, if, right, if, if, if you got to take vengeance into your hands, if every single person in this room had the power to have that vengeance in their hands, none of us would exist. Because we would have wiped everyone off the face of the planet before we turned three. And so notice in that the, the powerful inclination that we walk around with, the desire to fix things and take matters into our own hands, and yet that is what we see here. That's not an act of faith. If you, if, again, if you were to import the language of Paul to the Corinthians, that's, not, that's, a, that's good eyesight. That's good sight. That's not faith. Secondly, it says to trust his timing. Again, this is, this is for me personally, I'll scratch this out. God, do it when I want it. I don't, I don't like not yet. And then lastly, notice he appeals to the steadfast love and the saving faithfulness of God. I can't tell you how many people I know who have lived most of their life in, a, in the bondage of religiosity because down deep they really believe that God will start loving them once they get their act together. As if to say, God, once I'm good, once I'm obedient, once I've put this sin to death, once I've done this, then, then God's going to love me. Then God's going to approve of me. And most of what they would call acts of faith are simply acts of trying to earn God's favor. And notice, that is not the way to joy. That is not the way to solace and rest. He says here that the way, the model we have here in this language is to look to God. The true and better hope is God and his faithfulness, his steadfast love. And for the Christian, that is to say that we trust the merit and accomplishment of Jesus. The words, it is finished, are the, are the basis by which we come to God. You have nothing to offer. In many ways, that's the most difficult thing to do here. Like The only thing that we're, we're required to bring to God here to experience hope it, are empty hands. And for most of us, that's, that's the most difficult thing we can imagine. To come to God empty-handed with nothing to offer, that terrifies us. And yet notice, this is in distress and suffering, an invitation to find deeper hope, more substantive meaning. Next, we see distress and suffering are known by God. Notice what follows is an account of his experience, a desire for God to, to step in and, and to, to acknowledge him. Listen to the language, to deliver me two, two different times, quite literally deliver me that I might be delivered to hold me up, to, to answer me, to turn to me. To he says, show yourself to me. He cries out to God to draw near to, to me. He says, redeem me and ransom me. What a, what a litany of desires that we evidently here are modeled for us and invited to cry out to God as if to say, God knows these things. God knows you need these things. And then if that weren't enough, 
he begins to cry out to God against his enemy. Did you hear the, the very specific ways he, he wants God to intervene and destroy his enemy? And, and, and in poetic manner, he says, I want you to remove these things, eliminate these things. I, I love the, at the very end, what, what a beautiful and poetic death threat. Verse 28, let them be blotted out from the book of the living. What a poetic way to say, I want you to kill him, right? <laughs> Might he be blotted out from the book of the living, right? You're like, eh. Again, imagine if, high, if, if the language of faith for you and I were high and lofty like that, right? But did you hear? There's very specific ways he's, he's calling out to God, trusting that, that God will know what to do with those requests. Now, we'll talk about this more next week, but this is a tension, is it not? Those in Christ who are now reconciled to the Father and have a ministry of reconciliation who now have, have a call because of Christ to bless those who persecute us, to, to pray for those who who would accuse us. We're invited in the language of faith to say these awful things. What, what a tension that we find here, right? But notice that I believe there's no tension at all in the sense that these are desires for retribution and vengeance, but they're not for him to take them himself. For himself. They're a desire for God to ultimately exact vengeance. Trusting that God will know. God will handle it. And distress and suffering are known by God. This might be one of the most encouraging things I say to many of you. Psalms like this, they're a composite, right? It's a mix of thanksgiving and praise at the end, and there's this imprecation. That's, again, an archaic word we don't use, but that that whole list of God killed this person, it's called imprecation. We're we're calling down the punishment and curses of God on something. And then also there's a lament here that he is experiencing deep sorrow and distress. And I have an encouragement to you. Psalms like this because they are so common. In fact, more than a third of the Psalms are classified as lament, like this. I want to encourage you. Would you consider the possibility that God knows your sorrow? That God is present? That God hears you? In fact, God desires. That's why these Psalms are here. It's as if God is saying, I want to hear you cry out to me. Look, any good parent knows this. The last thing you'd want a child you love to do is to, have, to be in distress and to be in sorrow alone. And God here invites us to say, look, you're not alone. I know about this. Distress is known to God. And here we're given the words to pray, even specifically when we experience false accusation. We're given the words to pray when you experience isolation. Did you hear that? I looked for comfort, found none. Ever felt that way? One of the affirmations that God knows is that we're given words here to speak, and even desolation. Things are awful. Things are terrible. Ever felt that way? So, if these are pictures of how this psalm is a reference to David and the life of faith, then when we see John chapter 15, remember remember as we saw, Jesus quotes this very first part to say that this cause of the suffering or righteous servant is actually a picture of me. It's actually a picture. The reference in this psalm is not necessarily or exclusively David. It is that. It's not just the life of faith, but it is the life of Jesus and the experience of Jesus and even those who are found in him. And so I want you to see everything we were invited to to understand and, and enjoy about Jesus. This is the one we saw last week. Jesus sunk into the depths as a servant. Now, you see that language uh, in, in what we just read in verse 17? He calls out, hide not your face from your servant. But that language of seeking into the depths, it's where, where the psalm began, and it's also where we just saw, he said, right, he said I'm, I'm falling in. Now, now, this is important for us because the, the language of the depths all throughout the Old Testament are almost always a reference to death, especially in the psalms. They're, they're a reference to Sheol, the pit that is to be buried, to go down into a dark and dead and desolate place. And so when he's speaking of the depths, he's metaphorically, again, in the same way he's like, blot them out from the, na- from, blot them out from the, 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 the book of the living, right? Kill them, right? In the same way, and he's like, I'm in the depths. He's facing death. And so when Jesus says, this psalm is about me, when Jesus says, this is ultimately about me, we're invited to contemplate a mystery, a mystery that the, the creator of the universe was he himself torn apart. The, the great and majestic Jesus High and lifted up, sunk down, lowered himself, took the, point of a, took the place of a servant in order to die, not just 
any old death, but to die on an old rugged cross. This is the way of the servant. This is the picture that we're invited to see about the life of faith in light of Jesus. Jesus ultimately took the place of a servant. He, 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 he went down to the depths. Now, now in light of that, I, I think this psalm tells us something powerful about Jesus as well. Jesus cried out from the depths. The example of Jesus is profound that even through being betrayed, even through these things, we'll, we'll, we'll see this in a moment, he entrusted himself to God. He cried out to God. In fact, Psalm 22, Jesus cries out from the cross itself. But Jesus lowered himself. Jesus sunk. Jesus came to be a human. Think about that. He became the God of the universe, became an organic creature, easy to kill, easy to remove. Like grass, the psalmist says elsewhere. And Jesus cried out as a human, calling out to God and trusting himself to him. Something else we see, Jesus was scorned, disgraced, and shamed before his enemies. Now you get a picture a little bit of what Jesus experienced. When, when Jesus comes along and says, this psalm is ultimately about me, I want, I want to invite you into something particularly interesting here. One author puts it this way, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if you were to know, imagine you know someone, or maybe you don't have to imagine this at all, who is going through a great deal of suffering. Imagine someone in your life who has gone, who experienced a tremendous amount of loss. And imagine, in the midst of their suffering and loss, you came across their diary. How would you read it? And in many ways, you're probably like, oh, I, I, can't, I, I can't even read that. It's too sacred, isn't it? It's, it's too lofty. It's, it's too serious. It's too substantive. And we're invited to do the same thing. Imagine, we're invited to to read the, the prayer diary of David and his suffering, but this is even more powerful. We're invited to read the diary, the prayer diary of Jesus and his suffering. And so, listen to what he says. He's like, deliver me. I'm calling out to God, but ultimately, these awful things are taking place. These terrible things. God, don't let death sweep over me. Don't let death get the last word. Verse 19, you know what I'm experiencing. You know my shame. You know the dishonor I experience. You know that the foes are around me. You know that reproaches have broken my heart. You know that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. Right? Imagine, picture, picture the Apostle Peter having the opportunity to stand up and say, oh, I know Jesus. He's the one in saying, I don't even know him and cursing, denying him completely. And then verse 21 shows up. Every single one of the gospel writers tells us about this and quotes this verse. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So this righteous sufferer here is crying out to God and saying that not only was I rejected, but the people who, who insulted me, the people who abandoned me, in this sense, started to prank me, right? They started to trip me. They wanted to like hide poison. They wanted to to give me something that ultimately was not about my benefit, but ultimately was about my demise. Every single one of the gospel writers quotes this. Luke chapter 12, he tells us a story that the, the soldiers also mocked him, right? So, so Luke wants us to know this is not a good thing. This was not a kind thing. This was an act of mockery coming up and offering him, did you hear that? Sour wine. Now, in many ways, this is a fulfillment of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 isn't just about the godly woman. Surprise. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. But notice, while this might be an act of kindness, right? To give someone something in the midst of their pain, something to dull their pain, Luke tells us, and each of the gospel writers tell us, that Jesus sunk into the depths such that he was mocked and shamed. And so when they gave him sour wine, think this, they were already mocking him as a king, right? Each of the gospel writers tells us that the sign over Jesus' head on the cross, he was, he was hung and left out to die on, said, like, behold, the king of the Jews, right? Like a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, ha the king of the Jews, look at this. As if to say to everyone in, in the Roman world, this is what happens when you think you're a king. Right? That's what the cross was, a public, shameful, awful way to die. 
And in the midst of that shame that Jesus endured, they offered him up what we see is a wine or gall or vinegar mixed with a, right, this sour wine. So I don't know how to illustrate for this. If, if, you, if you don't drink alcohol, this won't make much sense. But he's, they're saying here, as an act of mockery, they gave him, like a king, the drink of a peasant. Imagine the cheapest Right? Imagine the, the, the worst, lowest quality kind of thing. Again, it's hard to say this without making you're going to laugh. But like, this is like, it's like he's, he's saying, here's the cheap alcohol. Here's the, this is not the wine of a, of a king. This is, not, this is not the honor a king would endure. And so this is like handing someone a 40 of Mad Dog, Schlitz Malt Liquor, Boone's Farm Wine. Again, I, again you, you're going to laugh, but that's the point. That's, that was exact what you're doing. That's exactly what the soldiers who mocked him were trying to do. Exactly. They wanted to make Jesus a laughing stock. They're like, who would, who would get this? And as you giggle, which I think, I think again, I think this is what we're supposed to do. You realize Jesus was scorned, disgraced, and shamed. He was made a laughing stock. And each of the gospel writers quotes this psalm as if to say, that's exactly what the righteous servant would experience. You get an eye into the prayer diary. And then he starts to cry out against his enemies. And this is where, remember when I told you each of these, as we sung about this a minute ago, we sing about it every Sunday, but what we describe is the reversals of things, that that when God intervenes, the things you think will be one way will ultimately be another. People who think maybe they're on top will find themselves lowered. They'll be humbled. And those who are humbled and seem like they're in a desolate strait will be exalted. And those who are oppressing, those who have inflicted desolation, will experience some sort of a penalty and punishment, vengeance and justice. And at the same time, those who have been oppressed, do you hear at the very end? We'll talk about this next week. Those, those who are needy, those who are even prisoners, it says, as if to say, like those who have been oppressed and have, they have no, they're powerless to stop the awful things happening to them. They will find themselves, because of God's kindness, exalted. And so also this psalmist is, is pointing to these, rap, these radical and redemptive reversals. Now, I want you to see here, this ultimately, this is how the entire New Testament understands Jesus. He's a righteous sufferer. He's the one who, now I'll give you just a list here. I commend these things for your study. But when Jesus is, quote, taken by the authorities by guile to kill, kill him, they're quoting Psalm 10 and Psalm 14. When the gospel writers tell us that that the enemies who operate with guile, they'll slander and bear false witness as they plot, the devise, uh, devise a plot against the innocent. He's quoting psalms like this. Did you hear it? The, their lies are used as an accusation. This is why, just practice, this is why Christians are committed to truth. They're saying what is true and apparently true. Because lies destroy. They do not reflect rightly the heart of God. Other psalms about betrayal. Betrayed by the one who eats with me is a quote of Psalm 14 and Psalm 41. Jesus' soul was deeply saddened, according to gospel writers, quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 42, Psalm 43. His being delivered or handed, handed over into the hands of sinners is the gospel writers quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Psalm 71, 82, and Psalm 140. When the gospel writers tell us that the enemies of Jesus seek testimony in order to justify putting him to death, they're again quoting you, the one you heard, Psalm 14, again. Psalm 37 and Psalm 54, bearing false witness against him, also in Psalm 27 and Psalm 35. Jesus' silence, not defending himself in the, in the face of false accusations and trusting his own reputation to God the Father is a quote of Psalm 15, 38, and even Isaiah 53. They offer him wine vinegar, right? Sour wine, according to this psalm and also mentioned in Psalm 15. His friends observing him from a distance, Psalm 15, Psalm 38. Think of this. The New Testament interprets Jesus' suffering through this lens. The New Testament wants you and I to know this is what it's like in the life of faith, but especially for those who are now in Christ. To understand the depth and reflect on it. I mean, with 
with painful repetition, the mockery and the shame and the experience of Jesus. Now, why do we draw such attention to that? Because it sets up the character of God in a redemptive reversal. There, there is no other world religion that talks about their leader this way, that he was a joke, that it's founded on a mockery, that it's founded on the, the powerful oppression of a person being wiped off the land of the living. This is radical. And so Christians regularly, if you're wondering, why did they do Why did they sing about the cross and suffering and death? Because we are reminded, we are reminded the power of God made manifest in a reversal. And so when we get to this part where, where you're meant to say kind of like, well, well, how is Jesus dealing with this, right? Up to this point, we've seen Jesus kind of embody this as a type and anti-type of, Jesus, of, of David. Like there are things that fit right in, but there are things that don't. In many ways, there, there, there are things that are right almost word for word how Jesus would experience the same, the same kind of words as David. And yet there's these anti-types where Jesus confounds even David and us. And so when you get to this section where he says like, here's what I want you to do to my enemies. I want you to make their table a trap, right? Again, you're meant to have poetic imagery. Like imagine building a trap that looks like a dinner table, right? That's what he's saying. I want these people are going to sit down to dinner. Oh, this is so nice, isn't it? And it, they're snared. They're caught up. They're imprisoned. Let their eyes be darkened. Let indignation be poured out on them. May they be desolate. He's saying, turn the tables, Lord, quite literally. Take the people who are oppressing and make the tables upside down. Make them to be the target of oppression. And this is where you get, well, how would Jesus, how is it that Jesus would respond to this? And I'm glad you asked because this is what we find, the powerful reversal. Jesus takes the place of his enemies. You can almost see every single one of these things that David cries out to the enemy being absorbed by Jesus. His friends turned on him. How, how was Jesus entrapped and arrested? Right? A kiss. How did Jesus experience the betrayal and how did all of a sudden the tables turn to where Jesus was the laughing stock and the crowds that presumably had welcomed him some, some week before are now crying out, he's the one we want to die. Jesus took the place of his enemies. Now I want to end on that kind of, kind of reflecting on the, the rapid reversal, the radical and redemptive, I'm trying to get as many R's in there as possible, not even doing that purpose, the redemptive, radical, redemptive reversal. And what Jesus does for us is we see, we see here all that the, the enemy deserved and David cried out that God would bring to the enemy. Jesus absorbs in our place such that we, we saw this last week that Jesus sunk in as a servant and Jesus sunk in as a substitute. Therefore, for us, we take this serious. This is something powerful for us. And those of us who are enthralled with who Jesus is. This changes us. We've been changed by it. And here's how you know that you begin to willingly take the place of a servant and willingly take the place of a substitute. Jesus came to be hated, but he also came to be exchanged. Did you hear that language of the prayer that we saw in that first kind of half of what we read? Ransom me, redeem me. Now, again, that's the language of exchange, Right? You, I don't even know how you would say you redeem it. That's not even a word we use anymore, but like redeem, that we redeem coupons, right? There's, there's like an exchange of one thing for the other, and he's saying, exchange me one for the other, ransom me. That is like, let there be a payment made so that I would be free and no longer hostage. And so this is a big deal for us. This changes the way we see the world. And here, here's how I would say it, say it to you. This is maybe if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, you're not really sure. Here, here's how I would say it. The trajectory of God in Christ is downward. Downward. He even tells us the, the disciples, like, other people lord over you, I don't. I take the place of your servant. And we see the kind of the meditation of that very thing in this psalm. So, has that, has that blown your mind? When you contemplate that the God of the universe 
right? We talk about this in communion. Who knit us together in our mother's womb was broken on our behalf. Does, does that blow your mind? Does, it, does that enthrall you? Are, are you changed by that? Such that now you see even your own life is a trajectory downward rather than upward. I'm going to be blunt. Is your life climbing a ladder? Is your life seeking your own glory? Is your life seeking your own benefit and comfort? Or is it poured out for the benefit and comfort of others? Because if not, then I just want to tell you, then you haven't seen him yet. You haven't seen him yet. And when you see Jesus entrusting himself to the, the care of the Father and forsaking all of the things that you and I are so regularly obsessed with and, and experiencing glory and joy forever and ever as a result, it frees you from the rat race. It frees you from needing to advance, to win, to be on top. Have you started to feel that? Have you started to, have you started to see the, the pitch in the commercial and in the world of how great success really is? Have you begun to see the cracks in it? Or maybe for some of you, you've experienced it and you found how dissatisfying it really is? Well then, friend, hear the story of Jesus taking the place of his enemies, emptying himself on our behalf. He also took our place, such that now those of us, we've seen it, we regularly take the place of others. We're willing to exchange ourselves for others. Look, you need to look no further than if I ask any of my, uh, either of my daughters to like clean something up in the house, I can probably get them to do it, right? But if I ask one of them to clean up a mess that was made by their sister, oh my. I didn't do that. And isn't, isn't man, isn't, isn't that a picture of our own heart? Isn't that part of it? Isn't that part of the, the psalm? That's not on me. Friend, how do you respond when you have to clean up someone else's mess? Do you think, I didn't make this mess? Let them come. Let them have the blame for it. Friend, when you have to clean up someone, mess, someone else's mess, are you, are you blown away that Jesus, the perfect and righteous Son of God, would look at your mess and mine and say, I'll take it. I'll clean that one up. That's not my mess. Because if not, again, you haven't heard this good news of Jesus taking our place, of Jesus in a way that you and I are blown away by, that he would come and take the punishment that you and I deserve. What does he do? Well, look at the last reversal here. It says, I want them to be blotted out. That is, I want my enemies to be eliminated. And I want to I want to tell you a story. It's more legend than anything else. It's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. I know that's this is not a joke. It's true. Someone came to Abraham Lincoln, and and he was he was pretty good at this. But uh, you know, he he appointed people to his his cabinet that that opposed him and ran against him. Uh, but then after the Civil War, there's a, a record. In, this was evidently in in a in a newspaper, and um, and some woman came to him and said, like, we should destroy the South. Right? They, are, they are rebels, and they, they are against the Union. We should destroy the South. They're our enemies. We should destroy them. And, and famously, Abraham Lincoln responded and said, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And here we have this powerful mystery that Jesus eliminates his enemies by making them his friends. He took all of the things that the enemy deserved so that he could offer the people who ultimately deserved all these things friendship. And then we can sink in the depths because of Jesus. We can clean up the messes of others because of Jesus. Because ultimately, he has taken the enemy and made us his friend. I was given this quote. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, a, a Puritan writer, wrote it this way. He just says, politic friendship. Now, politic friendship he's describing here is scheming. Is, is lying and, and conniving friendship, bids you to take heed of a reconciled friend. That is, to be wary of. Right? So he's saying, like, scheming kinds of friendship built on reciprocity ultimately make you suspicious 
And it kills your friendship with the other. So like that kind of worldly friendship makes you distance yourself from other people. And so politic friendship, scheming friendship, bids you to take heed or be wary of a reconciled friend that hath been treacherous. And they've done you a mischief. We should talk like this more. You've done me a mischief. I apologize. So politic friendship, scheming friendship, makes you take heed of a reconciled friend that's been treacherous or done you a mischief. But God delights in such to choose. He therefore chose forth his entirest friends out of the sons of men that had offended him rather than make new ones. I love it. I heard a pastor think of it like, have you ever thought of the idea that in our sin, God could have just like, let's just make new people. Let's just be done with these. Let's make a 2.0, man. Let's forget this. He could have just made new friends. But what, what a powerful observation. Instead of making new friends, he chose forth his entirest friends, that his, his utmost and dearest friends, from the ones who had offended him. For he knew that they would love him better. A friend that is in his radical disposition of a good and ingenious nature and hath wronged you, such a one when reconciled, and you have pardoned him, is the best and fastest friend in the world. Right? The Proverbs teach us this, that the best way to pour heaps of coal on your enemy is to like, be nice to them. Right? What a powerful picture, a reversal. That as, as the psalmist is crying out to God, eliminate my enemies, Lord, eliminate them. Jesus turns the table of the enemies and eliminates the enemies. That is you and me, those of us who have, who have rebelled against God, who have, who have turned against God and really want to take matters into our own hands. We don't really want to live a life under God. We want to live our own life as God. We want to make other people subject to us. We want to do whatever we want. And instead of wiping us off the face of the planet, he took you and me as enemies, Romans tells us, and even while we were enemies, he sent Jesus to take our place. He has eliminated his enemies. Don't miss this. The Lord will eradicate his enemies and the enemies of his people. And he will either do it by making a public and eternal spectacle in their punishment and justice, or he will make a public and eternal spectacle of grace and mercy. Friend, hear the invitation of the suffering righteous servant who has taken your place, who has decided to make you and I his entirest friends because he knew just how confounding and glorious that would be, entrusting himself to God. Now, I want to wrap up with this last word I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. Maybe if you're in this room and maybe, maybe you're not sure about Christianity, you have questions. If I were to, if I were to invite you to one act of response, did you, did you hear the very first phrase, but as for me? I want to tell you a story about hair coursing. I was reminded of this. Someone told me this, uh, reminded me, I actually, I said this, I, I gave this illustration at a talk that was very powerful and I didn't remember it. And I was like, well, the Holy Spirit took over there. I appreciate that. Hair coursing. It's a fancy word for rabbit chasing, Right? And they train sight hounds to, to run down and hunt rabbits for sport, or they train those sight hounds to, you, to, to gamble on, right? Either, will the sight hound catch the rabbit? Or if you ever watch a greyhound race, right, they're chasing what? Somebody's little, some little boy's bunny, right? Bunny! And, and, the, and the sight hounds chase after it. And kind of one of the stories in training of these kinds of sight hounds goes like this. As they're training and looking for the best of the hounds, it's a very common occurrence that while these sight hounds will be just hanging around, uh, either a rabbit will get loose or a stupid rabbit will see a sight hound training facility and run through it. And kind of the, the, the story goes like this, that all the dogs will start chasing after the rabbit. And a good trainer knows two things are going to happen. One. All but one of those sight hounds, those dogs, are going to come back. They're going to come back to the porch or right back, back, back to the trainer with their tongue hanging out, with their head down, sad and plopped down. But there's one. One of those sight hounds will come back walking as tall as possible, prancing like he was on a dog show with a rabbit in its mouth. 
Sometime later, after the, the, the wagging tails have stopped and, the, and the, the, the drooping tongues and posture, these dogs have come back and flopped down. Later he will come. And, and here's why. The, the trainer will know. Most of those other dogs weren't actually, they didn't actually see the rabbit. They just saw the dog that saw the rabbit. And the dog that saw the rabbit will pursue it. We will not stop until he has gotten it. And the other dogs will run because, I mean, you see someone running, it's, you, is that, where, why are we running, right? And all the dogs will chase, but they will not chase the rabbit. They will chase because they see the other dogs chasing the rabbit. And only the one who sees him will endure. Friend, many of you are not chasing Jesus because you've seen him and beheld what he has done. You're just chasing a bunch of other people chasing Jesus. And the invitation for this psalm here is to say, but as for me, I have seen I have seen the one who has emptied himself of all to take my place. I have seen the one who has is, who is drooped down and lowered himself to be betrayed on a cross. I have seen him. I have seen what happens to him. And I now know him. I have received it. I have had as a gift. I, I now walk tall, not because I'm great, but because I've been given a gift. Friend, for you, the response is to, maybe today is to say, have you seen Jesus? To where you, ask for me. Could you tell the story of how Jesus is so good and satisfying to you? Because maybe for you, the invitation this morning is maybe if you, you don't even, maybe you wouldn't even know if you're a Christian or not. I want you to begin to understand the profound and pow- powerful reversal that God, the God of the universe has emptied himself, has taken the form of a servant, taking the punishment of his enemy in order to make you and me his friend. Oh, what a gift. Might you say, but as for me, that's, that's where I'm going. That's who I am now. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are merciful and kind to us. We confess, Lord, that we, uh, that we have more in common, in this case, with the enemy in this psalm. And so thank you for all the powerful reversals we see here. Maybe for some of us in this room that maybe they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. I'm so glad you brought them here. I pray that they would be welcomed and I pray that they would know how much they are loved and I pray that they would know just how much they are appreciated. And so thank you for bringing them here. Might might today be a a moment where we begin to hear the, the cry of a righteous servant that is Jesus, that we would read the diary of the suffering of Jesus and be amazed that any person would willingly take such a place. Might that enthrall us, might that change us, open the eyes of faith that we would trust in Jesus. Maybe for the rest of us, maybe, maybe we, we're just kind of, we're going with the flow. We're, we're, in many ways, we're here this morning because other people are here. We're not here because Jesus is here. God, would you overwhelm us with your presence? Renew us as we contemplate what Jesus has done. Might this mystery that the God of the universe took our place inspire us and make us new. Might it stir us up to praise and thanksgiving. Might we, with a joy we can only experience as a gift, celebrate with gratitude all that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you that this righteous and suffering servant in this psalm has come to take our place. Thank you that it points to the one who came to take ours, who entrusted himself to a faithful God and was not abandoned to the grave so that now we also can entrust ourselves and our suffering and even death to the deepest of the pits into a faithful God because we too also know that because of Christ and in Christ, those who have trusted in him will be resurrected with him. Let us celebrate and with thanksgiving and gratitude sing about that mystery in Jesus' name. Amen.